Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Tuesday, April the 18th, 2023. Judging from the front page of the gray old lady, the New York Times, things don't look so great on the American foreign policy front. Um, according to one headline, Russia is importing Western weapons technology, bypassing sanctions. In other words, the sanctions are not working on Ukraine. Um, Moscow denies uh, a Wall Street Journal um, reporter's request for bail. And at a meeting in Japan, the foreign ministers of the G7 are affirming their shared visions of Russia's war on Ukraine and China's quote-unquote assertiveness, I'm guessing, perhaps on Taiwan. There's a lot of pessimism in foreign policy circles. And otherwise, Wall Street Journal has one op-ed about if, if Western civilization dies, put it down as a suicide. So what should America do to reassert itself in the world? According to my guest today, Daniel Rundy um, has a new book out, The American Imperative. Uh, America needs to reclaim its global leadership through soft power. Daniel is joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts, the intellectual home of soft power. I think the term was invented by Joe Nye, a professor at Harvard University. Uh, Daniel, welcome. Congratulations on the new book. Uh, what exactly do you mean by soft power and how can America reassert its global strength through soft power? Andrew, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being on your show. Uh, so what I mean by soft power is there's hard power, which is military power. You could include intelligence as a form of sort of our hard power. What I'm most interested in when I use the term soft power are things like our ability to provide foreign aid, our leadership in institutions like the multilateral institutions that I want to talk about, things like long-term training and education, uh, as, some, as well as diplomacy, various forms of diplomacy, public diplomacy, commercial diplomacy, uh, as well as um, just pure diplomacy. These are all things that we're going to need, as well as having a trade agenda. We're all going to need if we're going to uh, reclaim our leadership in the world because we're in a new age of great power competition with the Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin's murderous regime. So I'm going to use the term China and Russia, but I want your listeners to think Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin's murderous regime. And so we need to have a, a strategy because they are near peer competitors in our in the non-military space. And this great power competition that we're in is not going to be fought out mainly in a military way, it's mainly going to be fought out in a non-military way. And so we need to think about our non-military forms of our power. I'm all for having a strong military, but we need to have not strong forms of non-military power because you can't fight something with nothing. You had an interesting tweet. Um, you, 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 uh, uh, from last year in June, you said this month marks the 75th anniversary of the Marshall Plan speech that shocked Washington into action. Listening to you, Daniel, 
there's the language of the Marshall Plan of historic post-war American greatness, but the world has changed over the last 75 years. It's all very well talking about investments and new Marshall Plans and America spending money and spreading its influence, but the world in 2023 is radically different from the post-World War age. So how do we need to change, if you like, the language of soft power? Thank you, Andrew. I think what I say is it's not your grandparents' developing world and it's not your grand your parents' developing world. That this, this contestation I was talking about with China and Russia is going to play out in what's called the global south, in the developing world. This is going to play out in Africa, Latin America, Southeast Asia, Central Asia, the Pacific Island states, places like Ukraine and Moldova. At the same time, these countries have seen significant progress in the last 30 years, not all of them, but many of the countries in the developing world have seen enormous social progress, political progress, economic progress. So the things that, that they have different needs and things that speak to their hopes and aspirations. We need a positive forward-looking agenda for our partners or potential partners that speak to their hopes and aspirations. Larry Summers today, the former treasury secretary and former president of Harvard University, had a tweet today saying I, he was talking to some prominent leader in a developing country that said, I'm really, I really share America's values, but what I get from China is an airport and what I get from you guys is a lecture. So I think we have to be, we have to update our toolkit. We can't fight something with nothing. That doesn't mean we have to meet dollar for dollar mainland China in terms of infrastructure. But so if they want to build some farm to market road in Tanzania, that's fine. But if they want to build a dual use port on the east coast of Africa, or they want to build a dual use airport, I think we need to kind of enable an alternative. Doesn't mean we have to do it, but we need to help enable an alternative. We also need to think about the same thing in the digital space. We do not want the unholy trinity of Huawei, ZTE and Alipay owning the digital rails of the future in the third world. Unholy Trinity, uh, uh, Daniel, that sounds a little Cold Warish to me. It's interesting that you talk about uh, Larry Summers and his, shall we say, lecture about lecturing. There was a similar op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today by Walter Russell Mead on America needing friends, uh, and they're not going to do that by delivering lectures. Scolding isn't a foreign policy, uh, the, the, the piece is headlined. Why is the Biden administration so moralistic and, 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 and lecturesome? Is it somehow, is this rooted in, a, in an East Coast moral sensibility of superiority that seems to come out in, in so many other cultural forms too? That, thanks for that question. I think the United States, we, we've seen major progress in human rights better governance, including sort of fighting corruption and democracy over the last 75 years. This is the 75th anniversary of the universal, the declaration, the universal human rights declaration. And if you look, we are in a flawed vessel. We've got lots of problems in our, you know, in our- Eleanor Roosevelt, of course, very influential in framing that. Uh, very, very influential. And I would say that all of those changes in positive, I would argue largely for the good in the world, that it's largely a freer place than 40 years ago. There's a, there's a more sensibility about corruption and human rights broadly 
are largely respected. All that has required U.S. leadership and all that has required the U.S. leading a coalition of the willing. So that's all to the good. I do think, though, that there's a uh, I think we need to understand that we we are, are up in a we're now in a situation that's different than, say, 10 or 15 years ago, where we're now competing in a soft power way with China. So we had sort of I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to say that human rights is a luxury good that we, we could afford over. There was from sort of, say, 1990 until 2015, where we didn't have China as a near peer soft power competitor, where we could sort of we could afford to sort of, you know, let our pirate flag fly in terms of all the things that we most care about in terms of our, you know, many of the things that we care about in terms of human rights, democracy and good governance. But what I'd say is I think we're going to be presented with an, an increasing number of difficult choices where we have to choose between. And I think this was similar in many times and during the Cold War, we had to make choices of working with folks who may not necessarily share our values because there was some other end that we were trying to pursue. So I think we should continue to push on democracy. We should continue to push within reason on human rights and good governance. But I think we also are going to need to understand that we're going to have to balance that with some other. Yeah, that, I, you don't sound very convinced, Daniel. You talk about human rights potentially as a luxury good. That's going to chill those uh, Harvard University moralists, <laughs> um, for better or worse. Let's let's talk Turkey. So you're one of the few people who seems to straddle everything. You write for Fox News and for The Hill. Um, you, you wrote in The Hill about how to salvage the summit of America's. Let's take Latin America, America's obviously yeah. closest neighbor, lots of potential allies. It's a, a continent increasingly in which Chinese and American influence are competing. What should and can, in very concrete terms, America offer Latin America that China can't? Thank you. I, I think a couple of things. I think that we... Need, we need to understand that we have a shared future with the Western Hemisphere. And in my view, we ought to be pushed, you know, countries like Ecuador and Uruguay have asked for free trade agreements, something the Biden administration doesn't want to offer. I think we should do it. I think we need to see the Western Hemisphere as an, a partner for nearshoring and a partner for having uh, access to, to a shared future in terms of energy and minerals. Oil, minerals, and mm. mining are going to be the new energy source. Yeah, there was a great piece. Uh, a great um, Daniel Zergin's been, uh, General Jurgen has been on the show a lot, and he's an oil expert. I'm sure you're familiar with his yeah, work. He wrote, yeah, he wrote an interesting email today suggesting that by 2050, uh, copper is going to be the, the, the key mineral because of the West commitment to electric vehicles. So you're absolutely, I mean, yeah, if, you love, if, you are if you're concerned about climate change and you're not talking about minerals and mining, I would argue, Andrew, it's a bullshit conversation. So I think I, I believe that most of the folks who talk about the carbon transition would rather not talk about minerals and mining because it's an inconvenient truth. And so you better love minerals and minings to the tips of your toes because we're going to have to let ne something like quadruple the amount of copper mining to have if we're going to even have a shot at a carbon transition. And 40% of the metals processing is now in China. So I'm going to switch my dependence on Iran, Venezuela, 
and Saudi Arabia for the People's Republic of China on metals. It's insane. Like, that's just not acceptable. So if I think about the Western Hemisphere, we need to think about the Western Hemisphere as a partner in minerals and mining. I also think we're going to get some kind of partial divorce from mainland China. And we need to think about the Western Hemisphere as a plus one or like a nearshoring partner for manufacturing and, and some things that we can't afford and they can afford. We should be thinking about that as a Western. So it's energy, minerals, manufacturing. Where are you on chips? So we've... Uh... We've uh, we've had Chris Miller on the show many times. Of course, uh, has a new prize-winning book on 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 chips, uh, computer chips. That is rather than yeah. potato chips. Um, are you uh, are you sympathetic to the Biden administration's position on trade or lack of trade with China, particularly on computer chips? So we don't want to. I think we should not be. I'm I'm in favor of cutting off mainland China from this, from having access to the good stuff in terms of making chips, because I think they, I think, so A, I'd say that. Second, I would say, I worry about us being wholly dependent on TSMC in Taiwan. I think, you know, it's great that there's, you know, some additional manufacturing. I actually don't think the marginal amounts of manufacturing of chips that's going to happen, that's going to take several years to kind of roll out in the United States, is necessarily that important. What's more important in my mind is that we're going to have a workforce that has experience working in these complex chip making uh, techniques. So I think whether it's a Republican administration or Democratic administration, we were going to have to diversify uh, that in essence, chips are becoming a, com a commanding heights of the economy that we need some capacity for. Now, I think I want Com private companies to do this. I don't want this to be run by the state. Uh, and I think if I'm Taiwan and TSMC, I'm not giving the top shelf, the super top shelf stuff is still being made in Taiwan because that is their silicon shield. That is the thing that's going to incentivize the United States to protect Taiwan is that the super good stuff, they're going to give us the good stuff, but not the super top shelf stuff. And the reason is, is I think it's a way of saying, if we give you that, you're going to have less incentive to protect us if, if mainland China invades us. So I'm all for diversifying. I'm for cutting off China. But I think we should understand that the manufacturing of chips in this country isn't necessarily going to solve our chips problem, but it's going to create a workforce that will help us kind of have some. Yeah, I wonder, the idea of cutting off China to me sounds rather than... 20th century in the sense that China is just as strong as the United States, particularly when it comes to the good stuff you talk about. An interesting piece on the Hill. You have a regular column, Daniel. Um, you, you, speaking of Taiwan, you said that Taiwan should lead a security response mission to Haiti. It, it sounds to me like you're thinking in a, in a sort of multilateral new kind of globalism where America may not be central but it's important strategic allies like Taiwan needs to pull its soft power weight. Is that what you're arguing? Yeah, I would argue that if we if, if we took the most charitable in, um, interpretation of some of the actions by the Trump administration, uh, I would argue that they were they were seeking a renegotiation of burden sharing with the other stakeholders in upholding the current system. I know that's like a big mouthful and that's like fancy, you know, pseudo intellectual talk. But I think what I'm trying to say is the current, we, we in essence have been beneficiaries of a global system backstopped by the United States since the end of World War II. 
I think it's in our our interest as an American. I think it's our interest to, to maintain it. I think what the Trump administration, some of the Biden administration has been trying to do is to renegotiate the term, the condo fee sharing, the cost sharing of this system, whether it's in NATO or other forms of security or otherwise. In the case of Taiwan, I would Taiwan has now 13 allies. They are shrinking the number of allies because mainland China is cleverly, they are a near, certainly a near peer competitor and they're squeezing out Taiwan. Taiwan has the economy of the size of Holland and, and, and the Netherlands and is the size of Switzerland. They spend 20% of what Switzerland and the Netherlands spends on foreign aid. They are, so they have, they need to be up, upping sort of what they're doing in terms of peacekeeping and foreign aid. I'm not saying they need to be fully independent, but for them to create sort of a, let's call it a space for their own identity and for sort of legitimacy as a right to exist, if we can put it that way, they're going to have to do a number of additional things in the non-military space. And I would argue that Haiti is an example of this. The United States does not want to mess with Haiti. I just read a really interesting history of Haiti called Written in Blood. You know, you, for, for better or worse, Daniel, the uh, United States has been messing with Haiti for hundreds of years. Time. That's a tragedy, right? It's, it, we have a very dysfunctional relationship with Haiti. I think I counted something like the U.S. military has been in Haiti since 1830, something like 30 times or something like that. We, we have no recollection of this as a country. The Haitians know every moment of this. There's almost zero political will for the United States to send folks in. Other countries we've sort of suckered into it, the Brazilians or the Argentines or others, have had their fingers burned with this. Uh, and so there's also been, sadly, some tragedies associated with some of the peacekeeping that the United Nations did, whether it was cholera or other abuse, cholera outbreak in the population of Haiti. So they're real touchy about using the term of peacekeeping operation, but let's call it a security response, which in my mind is basically yeah. a peacekeeping operation. Like the, if you look at what's going on in Haiti, it's basically super chaotic. Right. So it's right. an interesting point. Let's let's talk more broadly. You mentioned the Republicans. We, of course, have done many shows on the Republicans. One recently with the New York Times columnist Tom Edsel on what he calls the Republican Party's descent into minority authoritarianism. It seems as if the idea of soft power is mostly coming from the old liberal, I use that word carefully, wing of the Democratic Party, the Joe Nye wing with its headquarters in Cambridge, Massachusetts, <laughs> where you are at the moment. I saw him at lunch today. Yeah, I'm, he's I'm still alive. Him. He'll live forever. Does yeah, he look like Mr. Soft Power? Does he look soft <laughs> or hard? He looks great. He looks like a million dollars. Wow. Wow. He looks, he's 83. He looks like a million bucks. He always looked about 90, even when he was 20. <laughs> so that maybe that's good. Um, uh, Daniel, in all seriousness, you mentioned Trump and, you know, maybe his foreign policy, especially on China, was actually. Yeah, it was like, I think it's the most important. Legacy yeah, I mean, it certainly is most positive legacy, which is totally. saying a lot. But if the Republicans do indeed, as Edsel and so many others suggest, descend into a minority authoritarianism, should we expect the, the Republicans to sidle up to the Chinese and the Russians? The notion of uh soft power for that wing the trumpian wing of the republican party is seems rather foreign yeah i, I thanks andrew for this question i think 
I find that I'm a Republican. I served in the Bush administration. You're a soft, uh, you know, you're a soft Republican. You're I'm a Republican. A, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an act I, in my personal life. I'm active and support candidates. I vote. I have campaigned for people. I've I've supported more. I've supported Mitt Romney. I was a foreign policy advisor. Mitt Romney as a foreign policy advisor to Governor Walker, who was more conservative. I was a gut foreign policy advisor and raised money for Governor Bush. And I helped Marco Rubio just to give. So I've kind of sort of a spectrum of the right to the center right is sort of where I, I stand. I'm a conservative internationalist. So I find some of these critiques sort of intellectually lazy. So, yeah, there are. You people, mean the Edsel style? Yeah, thing. the Edsel stuff. I think it's bullshit, frankly. I think let's look at the Ukraine thing as a, as an, a litmus test. So in May of last year, 80 percent of the House Republicans and 80 percent of the Senate Republicans voted for the supplement, the military aid and economic aid for Ukraine. Do I think today? It's 80%? Probably not. Is it more than 50%? Yeah. Do I think, so for him to say that, that's just like an intellectually lazy and stupid thing to say. That, that's also, it's, yeah, so I think it's, um, look at like, is Mitch McConnell like that? No. Is Marco Rubio like that? No. Is Michael McCall like that? No. Is Kay Granger who cuts the checks for like a pro top appropriator in the, in the house like that? That's no, it's bullshit. So I think this is a, this is a okay. So yeah. So are there a, is there a vocal minority of people there are you know that say some crazy things to get on Twitter on television? Yeah. Do I think it reflects the vet? So here's the question I would say to I don't know a single Republican. I've yet to meet someone, Andrew. When I say to someone in Washington, and I live in Washington, are you cool with main, the Chinese Communist Party running the world and setting the rules? I haven't had a single MAGA person. I have a lot of friends who are in the Trump administration. I haven't had a single person say to me. Oh man, I am so cool with that. I'm tired of America leading the world. I'm going to hand this over to the Chai Coms. I'm handing this over to Vladimir Putin as Merz regime. That would be awesome. So I don't believe that. I think that's a bullshit statement by people on the left who 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 want to. It's not true. So yeah. So do I think? Um, and I actually think that most. But, but um, let, let me jump in. I mean, yeah. I, I get your point, but if. The Republican Party does, as Edsel suggests, increasingly turn a blind eye to some of the constitutional norms of democracy. Might that undermine your soft power strategy? I mean, how how are countries in Africa or or Latin America supposed to take American foreign policy seriously when it seems as if one of the one of the major parties, one of the two major parties in the country seems indifferent to a lot of democratic norms. And you mentioned McConnell, even McConnell, it seems often indifferent. So, I, you know, I don't know if I would agree with that. I mean, I would say we have, you know, many elected officials. We have, I don't know how many elected officials run and stand for office under common norms in the United States who are Republicans, whether in the opposition or actually are whole office holders. I'm guessing it's like 10,000 or 12,000. Um, so I don't know what that means when they say that. I mean, I think it's, you know, I think it's, um, I, I, so I, I find it, um, I think ultimately, if you look at, let's use Ukraine as an example, yeah. uh, there's significant support in the Republican Party, at least in the Congress, for supporting Ukraine. I think over, I think America likes a winner. And if they have success in the battlefield, we're not going to pull the plug. Like, we're not going to pull the plug on a winner. Let's talk briefly about Ukraine. You had an interesting uh, Hill piece. You said 
Ukraine is not only strong, proud and free, it's open for business. You wrote that at the beginning of yeah. March. Are you suggesting that we should think of the Ukrainian uh, conflict, the Russian invasion, in terms of soft power and your new book, The American Imperative, in terms of trade policy and seeing Ukraine as an importer, uh, an exporter, an economic friend? Absolutely. So they are going through a violent angry divorce after a shotgun wedding 400 years ago with the Russians. They're changing their religion. They're changing when they celebrate Christmas. They're changing what language they speak. They're changing who they trade with. They're changing their infrastructure. The key is for them to, I know this is going to sound like, you know, internationalist gobbledygook, but it's really important. They need to join the European Union. This is like the coolest fraternity in college that like what hazing would you do to join the coolest fraternity? And so for them, joining the European Union is going to give them access to money. And it's also going to change the calculus of their political class in terms of better governance. And it's going to change the calculus of their voters. Something like more than 80 percent of the Ukrainians now want to join the EU. So it's the only carrot we've got. Like I can write papers in Washington. The cows come home. We can give them foreign aid and we can give them diplomatic lectures. But to change real behavior in Ukraine in terms of sort of to, for them to go on a path that follows Poland or the Czech Republic, it's joining the European Union. But they're going to do that. And we should use our foreign aid and our engagement with them to push them while the EU mm. process is the pull. And we need to envision a Ukraine that is someday have the Ukraine has is the same size as Poland and has one fourth the GMP of Poland. That, and so you'd say, why the heck is that? And there are people who should be writing PhDs, political economy PhDs on this. And the, one of the reasons, there are other reasons, but one of the reasons is, is that Ukraine never had a pathway to EU accession. They've now been, they've been given a save the date, but they haven't been actually formally invited to do it. In my mind, this is a really important opportunity. And so uh, we need to work towards that. I've been asked by the Ukrainian government to join an experts advisory group. I'm not on an ad board or I'm not being paid, but because I've been leading a significant exercise uh, at CSIS, the, my, my day job, where we work on, uh, you know, we're working on Ukraine reconstruction. I've been spending a lot of time on this. So absolutely, this is... Right. This is so very briefly, history. I know you got to run, Daniel. A couple more quick questions. Um, you mentioned Ukraine and the EU. I'm not sure how eager some people in the EU would be to have Ukraine. Yeah, in it. But yeah, what, yeah. About, um, what about the biggest question, of course, uh, and NATO? How does NATO... Uh, we've done many shows on NATO and Putin, one with Charles Kupchan, I'm sure you're familiar with his Yeah, work. sure. How does NATO fit into this soft power okay. idea? What, um, g Given that NATO is not a, soft, a vehicle of soft power, it's a military alliance, should America com remain committed to, to NATO? And how does it fit into your strategy? Thanks for asking this. So if you go back to the Marshall Plan, the Marshall Plan was carried out in 1948, uh, because of a coup in Czechoslovakia or 1947. And so there was the Marshall Plan and NATO, and they were like the chocolate and the peanut butter. They were like, need you needed both. There were both sides of the co same coin. Shouldn't that so be I'm the not, jelly and the peanut butter? There was maybe jelly, but I always liked, I liked the Reese's peanut butter cups. Like the, you needed both to have the peanut butter cup. So you needed development and you needed security. So in the case of Ukraine, 
Um, what we need is we have to decide. And if you ask me, I think Ukraine ought to be a member of European Union and it ought to join NATO. If, if we can't get there, then they need to have something like a very special strategic relationship like we have with Israel. So Israel, we do not have a trade relationship with Israel, but they get access to all of our top shelf technology, defense technologies. What we want is a Ukraine that's as wealthy as Poland and economically successful as Poland with the defense capacities of Israel. We want them to be jacked up and buff so that no one messes with Ukraine ever again. And what we want is for the Russians to have such a bad military experience in Ukraine that they say, oh my gosh, I'm not doing that again for a hundred years. I'm going to take a time out on trying to do Ukraine for a hundred years. You never hear the Russians, Andrew, say, oh man, I want to do Finland. I would, let's go, let's go whack Finland. They got whacked. They got their teeth kicked in by the Finns in 1939. So you never hear the Russians say, yeah, let's go do that again. Or Afghanistan was- as well. And they got their- right. You don't hear them yeah. say that. So what we want is for the Russians to have such a bad experience in Ukraine that they have their teeth kicked in and they're like, I'm just, I'm going to just take a pass. And you have to watch the Chinese. The Chinese are also watching saying, well, maybe the Russians will pay a high but acceptable price and therefore I can go do Taiwan. So we need to have a security arrangement for Ukraine along with sort of this development agenda that leads them into the European Union. Finally, Daniel, you mentioned uh, Israel. It's interesting. We talked about Latin America. We talked about Taiwan. We talked about Russia, China, Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, Poland, Finland. The one kind, the one region we haven't talked about is the Middle East. We did a show earlier this week with Stephen Simon, who has a new book out, um, "Grand Delusion: The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East." Of course, American policy in the Middle East has been mostly catastrophic: Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, if you include that. Is your American imperative in, a, in an odd way, implicitly at least, an acknowledgement that America has to move on from the Middle East as the, the loci, the, the central focus of foreign policy and recognize that in a post-oil age, um, this obsession with the Middle East was a strategic error? So I think we have equities in the Middle East, but I think the great game is with China and Russia most of that is going to play out in other parts of the world. I think it's going to be the big show is going to be Southeast Asia. The big show is going to be Africa and Latin America. And so I think we will continue to have equities and interests in the Middle East. I think we should continue to keep be hopeful. Uh, I think there's no reason that there can't be democracy in parts of the Middle East. I know that sounds crazy and a little bit kind of, you know, given sort of the world that we're in. But we need to kind of keep some hope alive that there can be, you know, Arab democracy, and also to make sure there's a series of social deficits in the Middle East. A lot of these are development-related issues, and we need to continue to push on those things. The door's knocking, Daniel. It may be the Saudis. (laughs) It could be. Thanks, Andrew. This is great. I'm really grateful that you, you had me on to talk about my new book, The American Imperative.